0: Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today, Rabbi Wilds speaks with Scott Shea. Scott is co founder and chairman of Signature Bank and a long standing Jewish community activist. Shea started a Hebrew school and adult educational program and chaired several Jewish educational programs. He's the author of Getting Our Group Back How to Energize American Jewry, and most recently, In Good Faith Questioning Religion and
1: Atheism. Uh, Welcome, everyone, uh, to the Wildscast, to MJE's podcast. And I have the great honor of introducing someone I've known, honor of knowing for a long time, uh, Scott Shea, uh, who is a leading businessman, thought leader, and author of two books. And uh, Scott co founded Signature Bank in 2001. Uh, Bank has become one of the best banks in New York City for private business owners. And he's really a renaissance man because. Scott, I remember from when my days at KJ, I was assistant rabbi yep. Akileth Jeshurin many years ago before I started MJE, and Scott had just started this incredible program, JYC Jewish Youth Connection, and it is still going strong for kids that are not in the day school movement, Jewish kids, to give them a Jewish connection and connect them and their families with the broader Jewish community. He's someone that uh, is not only a successful businessman, but cares deeply about Jewish continuity, which is the business that MJE is in. Uh, he's uh, an author, phenomenal author. His first book is called Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry, and his second most recent book that I'm a huge fan of, and it's taken me a while to go through, but I'm enjoying it. It's called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, which has been recognized as one of the best books by two, of 2018 by Mosaic authors, and earned him a finalist award from National Jewish Books. Uh, Scott gives talks around the country. He's interviewed on TV, on radio, podcasts throughout the year. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. And
2: Rabbi Mark, let me say, flattery will get you everywhere. So thank you for the <laughs> kind introduction.
1: Well, that was a, a dumbed down. I mean, that was a, that's a dumbed down. There's, there was a longer bio, but I... I figured I would give us more time to talk. But thank you so much for joining us, Scott. We really appreciate it. It's good to be here. It's good to see you again, even if we're doing it virtually. Uh, yeah, well, that's the name of the game these days. So, you know, let, let's, let's get right into it. Um, you mentioned in the introduction to this book, and I had actually never known this, even though you and I have known each other many years, mm-hmm. that your father was a survivor, was a Holocaust survivor. And I also saw in an interview with Tablet, you shared something very, very personal that, you, that your father sh- um, saw his father murdered uh, in front of him by the Nazis. Uh, I'm curious, and I think our listeners also would be interested in hearing how that shaped his belief in God and later your belief and your experience of God in Judaism in general.
2: Yes, it is a personal story uh i will i will share it and uh it was formative to me so i grew up in chicago in east rogers park with my father knowing that it had taken a miracle to get them to to get him there to marry to have a son i'm an only child Mm -hmm. and when he was not yet 14 The Nazis entered Sveksna, Lithuania, and they gathered up the Jews um, with the assistance of the locals and divided the Jews into lines. Many were uh, actually even killed before they were put in a line, particularly women and small children. And my father was put into a group where he was thrown, where he was put into a line. He didn't actually see his father when he was put into the line. So he started searching between the different groups, running to try to find his father. And when at a certain point he did see his father and a Nazi grabbed him as he was running and threw him into the other line, that that is the reason my father's alive because the line that his father was in everyone was murdered before they left svexna my father was then sent to the svetlin hattigrug work camp which was in lithuania where he worked for a where he worked for a couple of years and then He was sent to Auschwitz for three months, as it turns out. Well, he was sent to Auschwitz. He didn't know it'd be for three months. He was sent to Auschwitz and then he was removed to go to a work camp to uh, clean up after the Warsaw Ghetto, as it were. In a funny kind of, not funny, in in a profoundly ironic way, that also saved his life because if he stayed in Auschwitz much longer, he would have been gassed, murdered. Uh, died from some other reason, then he was sent to Dachau, where again, I'm going to use this word funny or ironic in a we're lucky in a in an ironic fashion is that because he was in Dachau, he was liberated by the American forces, and at the time he was liberated, he was less than seventy pounds. He was probably days, certainly not weeks away from death. and when he went into the 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 American forces put him into a field hospital, where he was there for almost a year recuperating, which was made all the more difficult by the knowledge that his father was, had been murdered. His mother had died in childbirth first prior to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, His brothers, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, my closest relative on my father's side, his second cousin once removed who had happened to go to Israel or Palestine. It was called at the time. So when my father got to Chicago, he knew that it was a set of miracles that got him there. I mean, if a book on your shelf was in a different position, that would have been enough for him to be dead. If he were one step forward, one step backward, one step to the side, if he were picked or not picked for various uh, work duties, Mm -hmm. he would have been dead. Every single one of these so... So. Consequential, but minor movements allowed him to be alive, so he was certain there was a God. He wasn't like I can't speak for you, but he wasn't like many of us who have faith in God. He knew there was a God because Mm -hmm. there was no way he couldn't have he could have survived. At the same time, he was also very angry at God because. God hadn't saved his father and his aunts, his uncles, his brothers. Sure. And he searched for a long time for his brother for one brother after the war before finally giving up. Uh, they were all they were all murdered, and how could God let this happen? It was a central question in my life. It was more central in my father's life, and so my, this may be too long an answer to this question. But, no, this is, this is um, amazing. Thank you for sharing this. But he was one of those people who would go to show, make sure that I was bar mitzvahed, make sure, literally, my father, who was a carpenter, made sure that the roof on the synagogue didn't leak. And actually, when That's my true. father could no longer do that, and when he passed away, the synagogue actually folded, because my father was literally a pillar of the synagogue. But praying was a different thing because to a certain degree praying is very difficult to a being that you're very angry at right and so while he would show up and show he and a, and a few of his, his 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 survivor friends would doze off during services don't take this personally as a rabbi doze <laughs> off during services or doze off at least when the rabbi was speaking leave a little early for schnapps so he was say... <laughs> He the big be, the being part of the Jewish community was very important. It was central to him. But the profound anger at God had real live repercussions. Wow! And I witnessed wow. this my entire life. But I mean, that must have. Did he talk to you about it? So, like many survivors, he it took him a while. He would tell me things. Things would pop out. Something would happen that would. Cause him to tell me something, and it might be, it might be something um, that would not occur. That 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 would seem, I don't know, inconspicuous or not, not. Not. It would be, for example, I was, I was, I was. We were once standing in line at some place. It was a cafeteria type of setup, a buffet type of setup. My father hated those, and I never <laughs> understood why. It's because he would stand in line for a half a potato. Wow. Um, And so he hated cafeterias that only came out, obviously, wow. Wow. you know, during that time where something else, you know, I grew up, I'll tell you something. I grew up where I wasn't really allowed to complain <laughs> because anytime I really complained about something in my life, my father would say, you know, it's not the concentration camps.
1: <laughs> and let me tell you, there is wow, no comeback for that. No, know, there's there's no nothing comeback. you can no, that's, say. That's tough on a kid, man. I mean, you can, there's <laughs> you no, I remember also when we were in camp and we used to have on Tisha B'Av on the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, and they would have these programs in camp and we used to watch these Holocaust documentaries and films. And I remember growing up, I didn't have, I don't come from a family of survivors, Although my mother's parents escaped Nazi Germany, uh, but they got out before um, they were taken. but this whole idea of like not complaining and not being upset about anything because it's all being compared to the holocaust i mean that's that's a heavy trip for a kid but in terms of god i'm I'm interested because i want I want to get to your book. Sure. Um, you know, so you grew up with a, a, a tremendous, profound faith in God. Even though your father was angry with God, he didn't deny God's existence. In fact, you're saying that he had more of a belief in certain. God because if the book was different, if this had, if this line was different, it, it would have meant it meant the end of him. So he knew that there was a God. I mean, that's and 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 how did that therefore shape your belief um, and and lead you to devote yourself to? um the jewish community you're you're a jewish activist you're you're an author on theological topics you know how did that develop well
2: so my father definitely wanted me to continue the jewish line the jewish lineage there's no question about that that was part of i think what drove him to be able to survive was that he wanted to not hand any victories to Hitler. I mean, that was, that was definitely all part of it. So I certainly always felt some sort of responsibility is continuing the line. Having said that, I really did think in the whole section three of the book is the question of good and evil. I mean, there are six basic and we, we, just as to enter into the book, there are six basic questions in the book that, that atheists raise. One one God, ten gods, a hundred gods. Well, going from a hundred to one God, well, you're directionally correct to the right number, they would argue, is zero. So what is idolatry about? What is monotheism about? And that's what I deal with in terms of chapter one, which is, I think, the core. What was the Bible trying to do? Second second section uh, is on making sense of the Torah because the atheists argue that it's a xenophobic, Homophobic, pro rape, pro slavery, racist, sexist, screed. And how can we believe in this thing? They denigrate the Bible. The third section is, I think, the hardest question that the atheists ask. And indeed, I think it's, I think every other question is much simpler. That Mm atheist asks in this one, which Mm -hmm. is, if you have an all-good God, how in the world, how in the universe, do we have a world where there's such man-made, where 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 holocausts happen, genocides happen, where babies starve to death, and that's what I deal with in the whole of section three, and that's a complicated, and I want to get into that. I'm just going to quickly give the other, the other section. Section four is a section I had been waiting 20 years to write, which is reconciling science and God, and there I deal with the creation of the universe and evolution. And mm-hmm. I think actually that's the, that's, those are the easiest questions to answer. I don't mm-hmm. think there's yeah. any conflict between science and the Bible. Mm-hmm. Section 5 is on the historicity of the Bible, because you have so many people to claim that the Bible was made up by some shepherds with too much time on their hands or some priests coming back from Babylonia who had political agendas. And so how can we believe in this document? And I really go into the documentary theory and all of the other academic criticisms, mostly higher academic criticisms of the Bible, which I think is a mm-hmm. critical a, 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 a critical thing for many folks these days. And then section six is prayer and this gets back in a certain way to my father's dilemma in a, in, a, in a way which is what is prayer all about how do we understand it how do we understand when god says yes and when god says no to our prayers uh, what does it mean to pray what does it mean to us personally and actually in thinking about the thinking about that question that was in many ways, uh, as I wrote the book, the thing that changed most for me, which is how I pray.
1: Wow. So, and I pray differently than I did before. I'm sure. You know, there's, uh, I don't, I didn't get to that part of the book, to be honest yet, but I will, I'm looking forward to it. And by the way, each and every one of these chapters and issues you're tackling are issues that I've been trying to answer my students for the last 25 years, uh, since I became a rabbi in got involved with Jewish outreach. These are the questions of the day. And I, I really, I, I don't get a commission. I don't get 10% or anything like this by promoting it. I'm promoting this book because it it does take on, it does it uh, confront the issues that so many people are, uh, so many young 20s and 30s that MGE attracts are really grappling with. I'll just tell you one story though, uh, Scott, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there is a story told about a group of survivors after the Holocaust who put God on trial. They all believe in God, but they're angry with God, like your father was, uh, understandably. And they have a little trial. They have a trial. And they have a defense attorney. They have a prosecution. And God's the defendant. And they convict God mm-hmm. of the crime of which he is um, accused. I don't even know what it is exactly. And he's guilty. Somebody looks at his watch and he says, oh, it's time for Mincha. We've got to, we've got to go to Daven. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, uh, and they all leave and they go to Daven Mincha after they convicted God of... So that generation, your father's generation, were such believers. And as you so beautifully articulated, you know, they, um, you know, I, I don't know if the Holocaust denied the existence of God to them. It just made them, it just made it harder for them to embrace him because they were so angry. Our generation is now being taken on by this new atheist movement, which I know that you are confronting. First of all, I'm just curious what put them on your radar. This new atheist movement. Why did you decide to write a book like this and why is this so important for young people today?
2: So when I wrote my first book, Getting Our Groove Back, which was published uh January of 2007, it actually made quite a stir in the Jewish community. It was it sold about 17,000 copies, which is a lot for a Jewish big. for a book which is only read <laughs> by Jews. Um, right. And then a few of my close personal friends who aren't Jewish, that's it. Those are the only non-Jews who read the book. Um, so it was interesting, though, because I got a reaction from many secular people that I wasn't expecting, which is, Scott, you seem like a reasonable sort of guy. You're a banker. You went to college. Why are you worried about what happens to the Jewish people? Who cares it's all about lox and bagels and our feeling of culture, but it doesn't really matter because there isn't a God. This was all something that was cut, came, that some people came up with and it was very nice, but who cares? And I'd find that these folks had read books by people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawk, Christopher Hitchens wrote sure. uh, Why God is Not Great, How God Poisons Everything. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, Christian, I'm sorry, um, Sam Harris, who wrote um, Letter to a Christian Nation and a whole bunch of other books. Victor Denger, who wrote a whole bunch of science books. Um, and um, uh, And it goes on and on. And when I started talking to people about this issue, I would find that People would tell me that one of really two views on, on their own personal religiosity. One is they thought it was all the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and just crazy stuff. A second group would tell me, and a larger group than, frankly, I'm happy to report, would tell me that, yes, they've read Richard Dawkins or they've heard the atheist critiques. but they still believe, they just park their reason at the door. They know it's irrational, they know it makes no sense, they can't justify it, but they still have this something in their gut. And I'd hear that from Catholics, and I'd hear that from Jews, and I'd hear that from Christians of other denominations. They sort of felt it in their kishkis, even if they weren't using those terms. The third group of people was actually the smallest, which is, yes, I believe in God, Yes, I think it's rational. And yes, I'm going to read and deal with the so-called awkward points in the Bible and the bad stuff. And there's a reason for that. And I'm going to confront it and I'm going to confront it head on. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to say I believe because I believe. And that was actually a very small, that was the smallest group. And then I have to add one other thing, which is I found that parents, uh, friends who were also parents, I have a I have a friend who sent uh, their children through 12 years of Catholic school, grammar school, probably nursery school, too. I just don't know of it. But Mm -hmm. K through 12. Then they went off to Georgetown. And um, one of them took a to one of them took a a course in comparative religion. Another took a, a course in something else related to religion. And they both came back. After a semester or two, atheists. They had Mm -hmm. been assigned Christopher Hitchin, they had been signed Richard Dawkins, they had been signed Victor Danger, they had been signed Daniel Dennett. And they there was no the parents were very distressed because they couldn't answer the children's their children's questions. They really were distressed. And so I felt like I had to write this book and you know i i we believe i believe that we're all mission driven i mean you have a mission which you you know mje which you've taken from nothing to a major force in, in 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 jury and i felt like my mission was that i had to write a response a response if you will to the evangelical atheists and I've been really gratified by the response because you had mentioned the book was published in 2018. It's actually gone through two print, two hardcover printings, and it came out in paperback uh, a little earlier this year. So people are need they need answers and they frankly oh, aren't is, getting this them.
1: Is, this is hugely needed. And and you know, if you don't mind me jumping in, it it's um thank you for the compliment about MGE. It it's this is so relevant. Uh, and it's not only relevant to those um who grow up outside of, let's say, the the religious sphere, whether they're Catholics, Muslims, or Jews? You just gave an example of a Catholic young man or woman who went through twelve years, and we have the same problem. Oh, with the Jewish day school <laughs> system. Uh, okay, I mean, I you yeah. know I taught at Ramaz for those years I was at KJ, and it was a great privilege. And I had a student who, uh, after twelve years of Jewish day school, graduated from Ramaz, went to work in a laboratory for a scientist, and after one summer, became also convinced because he spent so much time with this particular professor and uh, researcher that there wasn't a God. And you realize that how much of this is in the day school curriculum? You know, they're not, you know, and and everyone's aware of those issues. This week's parsha, Parshat mishpatim, okay, talks about slavery. How many of our students are aware of what the Jewish concept of slavery or servitude is and how it doesn't smack of the African-American enslavement in this country how many people are you know the age of the universe we all hear that most cosmologists believe the world is 13 14 billion years old and the torah tells us 5781 so natan slifkin wrote three or four books on that issue which are excellent i think um about um about um reconciling the age of the universe with the biblical account there are no mentions of dinosaurs in the Bible, and we've got fossils to prove that they existed. Um, I really think there needs to be a course, and I'm not putting you on the spot live here, but some of this at least should be taught to high school kids. I think it's too sophisticated maybe for the elementary school level, but 10th, 11th, 12th graders should be hearing this because they're going to go to college campus. They're going to confront these issues, and we can't cocoon our kids forever. They're going to be out there in the world, and they need to be proud of their Judaism, that it has, that it has what to say and, and, and ways of reconciling these issues. And sometimes, you know, there may not be a full reconciliation, but we have to believe there's profundity and wisdom in this and not just in the world of science. And I, I I really, I give you a huge Yashikach, a rabbinic pat on the back for, um, for authoring this and would encourage you to, to try to move it into more and more of the into the already believing part of Mm -hmm. our community, because like you said, most of us who believe are just believing because that's, you know, most people just follow what their parents do. They're not really analyzing, but I will tell you in my business, I cannot be successful without getting people without inspiring people to change their thinking. And that's why I've been teaching these topics. And that's why this is so meaningful uh, to me. Um, Tell so us, I, I want to jump into two something things. You, if I, uh, I does just it take more say. faith to be a theist or an atheist, in your opinion? Well, if I can just follow up on one thing that
2: you were, you were talking about, which is, first of all, it is a couple high schools, Ida Crown and Cohelet uh, in, sure. uh, in Philadelphia. Ida sure, Crown and Chicago, Kohelet and Philadelphia both did give my book to their high school seniors. And I understand Great. other people are doing that. Great. Um, because they recognize that kids are going to go off to college and they're going to get exactly, exactly um, uh, the full atheist explanation of the universe. Uh, the second thing I would say is, interestingly, my my uh, 80% of the talking that I've done, if anybody follows what I've been doing, on the book has been Christian. There hasn't wow. been as much embrace in the <laughs> – there hasn't been as much embrace. So, I'm looking at the story uh, about uh, which I assume has appeared on everybody's screen. Um, (laughs) I couldn't understand what was going on. Asked the family that was taking him shop about
1: lunch, what was going on. I can only hear. I can only read part of it. Um, Yeah, it's a Rabbi Riskin thing. But but tell us a little about the because you make this point in the book, and I think it's a very compelling argument. Does it, you know, because people think that in order to believe in God, you have to take a leap, and I and I agree with that. I think there is. I don't think you can fully. I'm actually writing another book, um, a basic Judaism book. The first chapter has got four or five sections on God, and I'm arguing also that, um, either way, you have to have some sort of leap. The question is, what's what is a more reasonable leap? Right. So to believe that there's a supernatural creator behind this, or that random, you know, natural selection random mutation, which is the leading, I think, um, uh, scientific theory proposed behind a creation, Big Bang Theory and all that, the, you know, either way, there's a leap. The question is, which is a more of a reasonable one? T- talk to that, if you can. Sure. So let, let me talk to that in a few ways. I,
2: I went to Google Talks. I did a Google Talk, which was a real hoot. Most of the people there were probably, I'd say, 80% non-believers, Uh, which is an audience I love, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about this issue both before and some degree during the talk itself, which is, okay, how do the scientists, how does this, and I, I think this isn't totally science, by the way, we'll get to that too. How do people say from a scientific perspective entirely without God, there is a universe that allows you and me to talk to each other? Well, there had to be from nothing this some sort of quantum blip, and from that quantum blip, just one quantum blip, unlikely it would unfold the rules of the universe that would um, allow life to exist, suns to exist, you know, anything to exist. probably it'd just be some sort of murky, black, dark empty cold universe but if you play with the constants of the universe and there's a famous book the this just six numbers written by an atheist ironically mm-hmm. that says that if these six constants of the universe and they relate to how fast energy expands the small nuclear force the great nuclear force essentially what we call dark energy essentially what we call gravity gravitation if they were just a little bit different in some cases one divided by maybe 50 60 zeros difference in some cases a little bit better a little bit a little bit more then that would be the only way that this universe would exist now if you think that those constants are random which you must if you are a non-believer you must believe that then the chances of our universe existing so that we could be talking here are about one divided by infinity. They are minuscule. They're almost zero. And so to get that, you have to believe in the multiverse, which is very popular these days. There is no scientific proof of a multiverse. No one's ever seen a multiverse. No one ever has conceived of a multiverse outside of mathematical equations. Now,
1: if you think that's all, just just, ha- just to clarify, just to clarify for our listeners, the multiverse theory basically advances the idea that there are multiple universes out there that the universe an infinite in which Earth, number infinite universe. numbers, and yes. that allows cosmologists to entertain this random that things could have happened on their own because it just gives more. We, there's not enough time for things to evolve randomly. All science scientists acknowledge that they need more time, but another way of getting to that is by saying that you don't need that time because you can multiply by infinite number of universes anyway and, yeah, please.
2: and we happen to be one over infinite over infinity even so it's okay and we just happen to be the one universe that allowed life to exist but right. it clearly just from the six constants i gave you required it required an infinite number plus by the way i haven't even gotten to the starting conditions of the universe which had to be extraordinarily precise in order for there to be a universe that could create hydrogen that could create helium, et cetera, et cetera. Now, by the way, so I think if you're, if someone offered you a lottery ticket with those odds, (laughs) I'd recommend saving your money and buying a Bible because not (laughs) only did you have to win the lottery, you had to win six successive lotteries of Uh infinite numbers of, of, you know, literally trillions of numbers. You ought to be the winner each time of those six or else winning just five of them wouldn't have made a difference because we wouldn't be here today. Now, by the way, similar sort of mathematical calculations could be used for evolution. Yes, if you take a single cell and you give it infinite time, then anything can happen. But we actually know more than that. And when people talk about the science, I, let's be precise. What is the science? We know how long it takes, we know how evolution happens. It happens through mutations of cells. And if you believe that the mutation of cells are, um, are random and then you can figure out how long it would take to create a certain number of mutations. Also, we have the full ability to figure out what mutations actually kill cells because 99.9% of mutations are bad and the resulting mutant dies, doesn't exist anymore. And so that's a dead end. If you figure that out again, we haven't even gotten close. If you figure it out mathematically, we're sort of at the stage of, you know, multi of, you know, multicell organisms we're certainly not at a stage where they're developed folks. Plus, no one has ever really articulated how the Precambrian expansion came because you had this slow evolution until the Precambrian stage where we were mostly multi-celled animals, multi-celled creatures, not even animals. And then the, Cambrian, the Precambrian expansion happened and suddenly, literally the phylum for every species available today suddenly appeared into into existence now at first darwin even thought that that would be fixed or resolved by further fossil exploration but the reality is it's never been found even when you dig down in sort of straight lines you find and there are places in the world where you can dig down in straight lines you get multi, multi-cell multi creatures, life, and then suddenly you've got substantial life, large, multi-complicated yeah. Yeah. organs. So could that have happened randomly and we don't understand it? Yes. I'm not going to tell you that I know everything. I'm not going to tell you that humanity knows anything, everything. But right, I will but say this. To, you
1: have to make a there's choice.
2: Evidence. Yeah. There's right. evidence. It just goes back to what you were saying.
1: Yeah. You have to What's make a I I think the same question happens with history. One of the things I'm arguing in my chapter on God is is I I think that the existence of a supernatural guiding force in the world is evident not only through science, as you are so wonderfully articulating, but Mm -hmm. also through history, Jewish history specifically. Because you can explain the you know the exodus from egypt okay so let's say atheists don't accept any of the historicity of the bible so let's go past the bible just look at the last 2000 years of jewish existence in the diaspora the per, uh, the, the 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 persians and the, Hanukkah, uh, the Purim the stories coming up and the Hanukkah and the greeks and the romans and the um and and just one country after the next we know that historically a minority living amongst a majority culture always is either assimilated culturally or annihilated physically and it's amazing because the jew has come so close to both and neither has ever happened now you could say you could probably explain this you know the hanukkah story uh, to talk about it about how this guerrilla warfare of the jewish people was was, was you know the maccabees was some able to get the upper hand against the the far superior greek forces and and uh you can say the same thing here in the but, and, and then to look at modern Israel and all the miracle Like, it's one thing to look at one thing, but if you take the collective um, result of Jewish history, of a tiny minority group living amongst a majority culture that has never been fully assimilated, never been fully annihilated, and still not only survives, but thrives. I'm talking to a, a founder of a major bank in New York City. Okay, we, the Jewish people don't just you know continue to exist, you know, minimally. We make the front page of of the Times all not all, and not just for bad things. <laughs> okay. And I so it I times think
2: frequently, I, but yes. Yeah.
1: But I so I I just think that um you know, we have to open our eyes and, and look around and see the, you know, because it's a choice. It's a choice. Uh I had somebody else on this podcast, uh, David Lichtenstein. I don't know if you know him. He has a very successful podcast yeah, and true. and he he opened up with that. He says every human being is faced with this choice because there is no explanation which is perfect. The God explanation is not perfect, meaning it can't be proven 100%, and the scientific explanation cannot be proven 100%. Which of those two options make more sense? I would throw in the Jewish history um, and add that to the mix and not just rely on science because there's, to me, this conversation... Between the two of us and the idea that random selection could have developed the perfect opportunity for us to evolve the way we did, you know, uh, just naturally, physically, biologically. It's just it's almost as unlikely from a historical perspective that we'd be having this conversation and that we wouldn't just be completely assimilated into whatever culture should have happened a dozen times already. Um, Tell me what, you know, I, I think it's very ambitious, Scott. It's, it's incredibly ambitious because most people just say, you know what, whatever people believe is what they believe. We have to respect each other's beliefs. This book is basically saying, no, I want you to read this and I want you to use your mind and I want you to consider another alternative. Um, how has this, um, are you seeing that this is bringing some people from disbelief to belief? And I have another follow-up question. How is this affecting your, um, your life as a banker? Are <laughs> people... Yes. Yeah. So a couple things. First of all,
2: um, I, I think it's hard to... I mean, we don't try as Jews. It's hard to convert people to anything. The Deciding that there is a God and you're going to live your life that way or the opposite, the stakes are really high. And so I think, like in many conversations, frontally saying, you know, you have to believe. I don't think works. What I really tried to do, and what I've heard from more than a few non-believers, is I at least gave them doubts about their doubts. So now they're on a path, which I have no idea which direction it's going to go, and they don't but at least they're thinking of the alternative. And in this day and age, when people are so ingrained in listening to their own amen or, you know, core section, regardless of whether that's religious or non-religious, <laughs> I I take that as a minor victory as a major victory. Even. By the way, least... I
1: it's, it's a major victory, Scott, because if, 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 the religious sector, and I and I I put all of the faith systems in this, not just Judaism, allow religion and God to be attacked without coming back with an intellectual response. We're allowing a lot of other people who don't think about this to think that Judaism, Christianity, Islam are just foolish, right. and uh, and that is, in my opinion, as a rabbi, that's a chil hashem, that's really a desecration of God's name to allow. It's one thing to convince someone, and I, I appreciate the honesty in your response. Like, But it's going to let people see. I, I'm sorry to jump in. I just got to share this other quick story. I sure. hope you don't mind. But before no, I started, um, before I came to KJ, I ran for three years a beginner's program in Queens, where I'm from. I'm from Forest Hills, Queens. I had a lot of Russians coming. And I was very young. I was 22, 23 years old. I was in rabbinical school. I started a beginner's meeting. There was this guy, Vladimir Nyman. He was about 30 years old. He had a PhD in mathematics from the University of Leningrad. He was uber smart, and every time he asked a question uh, during the beginner's minion uh, that I used to run, he used to stand up, and he used to freak me out. Like, he totally intimidated me intellectually. And uh, I tried answering his questions. They were all about science and religion. And and I I was 23 years old. I was like, you know what, I, I want you to meet with my rabbi. (laughs) <laughs> My rabbi, blessed memory, Rabbi Joseph Grimblatt, was a great scholar, theologian, and philosopher. He wrote a lot. He was brilliant. He met with for They sat for an hour and a half. And the rabbi called me afterwards, Rabbi Grimblatt. And he said, Mark, you're making a lot of progress with Vladimir. I said, what do you mean? Making progress? He didn't believe in God before he came. He still doesn't believe in God. <laughs> so he says, this is what Vladimir told me. He says, before I started coming to the Queens Jewish Center Beginner's Service, I thought that all people who believed in God were fools. They were unintelligent people, superstitious. Mm-hmm. He says, Now I still don't believe in God, but now I believe there are intelligent people who do. Mm. So I'm telling you, I'm sharing that story with you, Scott, to thank give you a little because thank because I think that is a goal in and of itself. Because one of our jobs as teachers and educators is to uphold the integrity of torah of judaism and to demonstrate even if you don't agree with what we're saying there's some there's something to what we're saying there's something yep. to what we're saying here i'm sorry i cut you off though no no, no. it's 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 all good i
2: i actually really do appreciate that story because progress it's a matter of getting on the right trajectory progress is slow but at least if you can get and and help folks get on the right trajectory i think it's good i will tell you so how does it impact being a banker i'll tell you how i think being a believer impacts and a believer in the bible impacts being a a banker and it's a very direct story and it's conceivable that even some of your listeners will have some sense of the story we well let me step back we are a bank like every other bank has to have the standards of conduct and because it has to it has to comport with all the regulations it's like you know yay thick and everybody has to supposedly read it and sign off on it and i read it one year or a few years ago and i said you know what we need to change this so the first paragraph Says, uh, this is a very long standards of conduct. You're required to read it. But if you just get the following, you'll be, we'll all be okay. Don't do anything to any client, colleague, or counterparty that you wouldn't want done unto yourself. The rest (laughs) is commentary, but you have to read it. Love it. It's almost an exact quote. I wrote it. Wow. And Obviously, I'm alluding to Hillel's formulation of the Golden Rule. So when it came time, this last March with PPP, and people were, and it was a mess. I don't know, you know, if you rewind back to that time, it was a mess. We're
1: we're trying to get the second. second, (laughs)
2: Okay, (laughs) well, there you go. Um, Well, in the beginning, banks were rationing people, only big clients, only private bank clients, only... Clients who have loans. So from day one, we had a a slogan. It was a slogan that I came up with, which only a banker can love. No compliant application left behind. (laughs) So that meant that anybody who complied, you had to comply with the rules. But anybody who complied, we were going to try to get you through. So that is a real-world implication. We took... 20 to 25% of everybody who worked in the bank changed their jobs to being involved in some way shape or form in the PPP lending process. We literally were working I was working 24 by 6. I mean, I would be done at 6, you know, 6 or 5:30 whenever Shabbat came in and I'd start up just after Havdalah. Most people working 24 by seven, we had people on two hour shifts of sleep and work at when we were actually inputting, inputting, inputting loans at a certain point when it was hottest Mm. and heaviest. And we got every single single application in and approved but that was only because we had the feeling like it doesn't matter that your loan's only 22,000, you know, quote unquote only 22,000 or only 47,000 or only 140,000. We have a responsibility to you. We know how important this is to your business, to your family, to your livelihood. We're going to do whatever we need to do to get this done. And so that was with my with my co-founders Joe DiPaolo and John Tamberlane, a commitment that we made disrupted the bank in a major way, major way. But we wanted to treat everybody the way we would be treated if we were in this situation and the future of our business depended on it. And that was our mindset. And that's a, that's a biblical
1: mindset. And and people knew, I'm curious, Scott, because what a kiddush Hashem, what a sanctification of God's name for one of the co-founders of the bank to be applying hillel's golden rule and 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 this book coming out about belief in god people seeing those two is going see that to me is the most compelling force that we will have not an intellectual one but a moral one where people start seeing that those who believe in god really walk the walk that they really behave differently in the marketplace um, that that that's a tremendous i mean did, did people could people see that a little that I don't know. Signature Bank, at least one of the three uh, uh, co. Well, all my three, my
2: my two co-founders. Look, it's about the golden rule. Ultimately, if you get the golden rule, I can be your partner and your friend and your and your and your and your colleague and your, you know, and in the and in the in the, um, uh, you know, in the in in information with you because. Right. Um, I think the golden rule goes to the essence of religiosity, which is we all have a spark of divinity. That's the beginning of Genesis, a sheet. And the golden rule says that I've got to seek that out in you. I can't view myself as above you because that's sort of a deification of me versus you. If I believe that sort of I can do something unto you that you shouldn't be able to do unto me, that's a mini deification. And I think that gets to the essence of religiosity, the essence of the religious impulse. And 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 I think that folks who adopt the golden rule, I think by and large are believers, but I think, I, but I, I wanna emphasize, I can really believe I can make common cause with non-believers who adopt the golden rule because they're not idolaters. Right. Idolaters right. are people who deify themselves, deify others. Um, it, You know, I think this is important. Give me one minute to define what I'm talking about. Sure, idolatry, Sure.
1: And, and I know, by the way, I was going to ask you and I'm happy you're jumping. I only we, we only have a few moments, but you did spend time in this book talking about idolatry, which I think is incredibly important because we never speak about it all. So please, let's hear what you have to say about that. So idolatry.
2: Most people think idolatry is some sort of quaint bowing down to to idols, uh, but it's really much more important. And this is why the Bible was so revolutionary. And if you're and if people remember one thing, I hope they remember this: idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing superpower or super authority to finite beings, people like us, ideologies, or natural processes. So in ancient days. The God King Pharaoh used poetry, pageantry and theater, all backed up, of course, with a secret army of informers and state sponsored Mm -hmm. violence to be deemed as the God King on Earth who had full power. And if Pharaoh wanted to throw the Israelite babies into the into the river and take all the Israelite women as sex slaves, that was okay, because that's what. That's what Pharaoh had the right to do. If he wanted something, kill the person, take it. No problem. And we thought, you know, sometimes we think that we solved all that 3,300 years ago. Now we have the Passover, Seder and we're done. But if you look (laughs) at the whole 20th century, it was a catalog of God-King pharaohs. Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, of course, Mao. I could go on and on who all use the same tropes as as Pharaoh, poetry, pageantry, ideology, secret informers, and state-sponsored violence. How did Stalin get away with starving a quarter of the Ukraine, killing all the Kulaks, sending tens of millions to the Gulag, or Mao, who caused the death of 75 million of his comrades? How did they get away with it? They got away with it because they were essentially God kings of idolatized ideologies. And yeah. that sounds yeah. funny, but the Bible nailed that. Totally. Here's, totally. here's the thing that people miss too. They miss that. And I think here's the thing that, that it also, it's not only a macro event, but it exists in our most intimate encounters. So how did, um, how did, uh, uh, Eric Schneiderman and Her- Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Matt Lauer get away with what they got away with. Well, um, uh, they were viewed. Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose was viewed as a idol at CBS. What he said was unquestioned and unquestionable for decades. So if someone made a complaint. Wasn't true. It couldn't be true because these idols, these men who turned themselves into idols had super authority over people's careers. They wasn't superpowers, but if Harvey Weinstein said you were getting a role, you got it. If he said he was going to ruin your career, he ruined it mostly to women, but some, but to men as well. He had super authority and it was only once enough people stood up and called an idol what it is that that made a change and, and it goes back to that golden rule because if Stalin wouldn't have wanted to starve himself or have himself killed and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein certainly wouldn't have wanted to have been treated the way they were treated, they, they essentially all deified themselves. And that's the revolution that the Bible was coming to do, which is to say, there's one God, we all have that a spark of divinity that we share. It's Selah Melokim. And anytime we put that aside, we're deifying ourselves. We're turning ourselves maybe into an idol. And that's when the really bad stuff starts. And if we pay attention to the Bible,
1: that won't happen. That is such a compelling argument. And it's so real and true just in terms of history. And I love how you... Just brought it down to what's been, what, you know, what happened before COVID. We forgot about all that Me Too stuff <laughs> during COVID now. But um, I thank you for really bringing that home, the message of idolatry, which so many people look at and go, that's, you know, one third of the Bible is just completely irrelevant to to, to most people's lives. It's like, oh, that was for then. No, these are contemporary issues. Every single, how many parsiot in the Torah, how much ink <laughs> has been spilled uh, speaking about Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, about the Exodus from Egypt, it was supposed to remember it every day in the Shema. We say twice a day. and We have the Seder. I mean, this really, this explanation, Scott, really helps explain why we spend so much time talking about the Exodus from Egypt and 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 all these prohibitions of of of, of idol worship. I'll tell you one last thing, and we're going to con- conclude. I also love how you have uh, somehow engage Christianity and Islam as partners in faith in a day and age when uh, we we tend to focus on what divides us. And there are, of course, significant theological differences we have with those other faith systems. But this book does an amazing job of bringing, I think, the believers uh, together and articulating ideas that I think are common to all three faith systems. I I don't know them as well um probably neither of us know them as well as as Christians and Muslims do but i think it's a tremendous uh, service that you're doing also for our relationship with our Christian and Muslim brothers and sisters so i, I just want to thank you for for writing this i this must have taken a long time um and uh if i could be of any service and help i'm going to be getting some copies for the MGE library and recommending this to a lot of my students um, and the more that this can become integrated into the day school system um, i I think the better this will be for everyone so um I thank you for uh, for your service to the jewish people um, it's it 's a tremendous service and um, uh, you should continue you and your family to be in good health and uh, and just keep inspiring people with um, with these amazing arguments and um and just good things to come. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was such an thank honor.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And Mark, I meant what I said in the beginning. You've, done, you've, you've transformed Jewish life on the West Side in many ways. I know I bumped into more than a few people who either have met, been inspired, or gotten married uh, <laughs> as a result of... Uh, 328,
1: th- three but uh, we're not counting. <laughs> 328 couples met and married, but thank you.
2: That's a great thing. It. That's, oh, that's, it's amazing.
1: And by the way, also, none of this could have started without the experience I had at KJ. Uh, the uh, incredible mentorship that I got from Rabbi Lukstein that I still get from Rabbi Lukstein. I'm still close with him and speak with him. And uh, and just the wonderful support um, that we get from the, the, the East Side. I don't know if you realize that just about two years ago, we moved our East Side operation to KJ, Rabbi Avi Heller is running programs out of KJ. And it's taken a little of a hit during COVID, obviously, yeah. but um, but it's been wonderful. And uh, we've got a number of families there that we've been sending our participants to for Shabbat meals. So I have a lot of hakarat Tov. Uh, when I see you, I think back to those, to my early days of MJE, and I just have, I'm just filled with a lot of gratitude. And, and I am Again today for for your time with us, thank you so much.
2: Well, I just want to say one thing we've a, mm-hmm. we've dated ourselves a little because <laughs> I start we started my wife and I started Jewish Youth Connection twenty five. We're in our twenty sixth year now. Wow! So wow! It's it's been going, and the the key and what I've learned from you and from others is you got to keep doing it.
1: You have to and, keep doing it, and 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 even in COVID. You just got to keep at it because every year you just get more kids. You get more people mm-hmm. and it builds and sometimes it takes a little of a dip and sometimes it goes up. It, I'm all about staying the course. So,
2: Thank you. Thank you for yeah. your inspiration. And I just should, should add, if anybody wants to read, there are some discussion guides on the book. Um, there have been synagogues that have used the book for discussion or for book groups. So if you go to scottshay.com you can get information on that. There's links and, and all of that. And I really thank you for helping to publicize the book. It's, it's, oh, it is my sure. mission.
1: Well, it is very, this was self-serving. <laughs> Not adulterous, but self-serving because uh, this, is, this is very much what we're about. And I appreciate it. So scottshade.com if you want to get some more study aids and guides to the book um and um thank you so much for joining us and um we look forward to uh, reading more and growing more from all of this thank you so much thank you all right take care all the best
0: all the best bye-bye we hope you enjoyed this episode of the wild's cast subscribe to our show on spotify apple podcasts google play or your favorite podcast app if you haven't already please leave us a review in the apple podcast store It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.